0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 8. Introduced this book uh, several weeks ago now. The theme, though, I didn't give out. The theme for 1 Timothy is church instructions. If we were to look for a verse that states that theme, I think we would probably find it in chapter 3 and verse 15. That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So this letter tells us how to behave in the house of God. Now, as a pastor's kid, I grew up in the pastor's home, and there were certain things that I couldn't do in church. I was not allowed to run in the auditorium. I was not allowed to open those candies with the cellophane wrapper that make all the noise in a church service. If I didn't, I got that look from parents either on the pulpit or on the pew. But when Paul talks about how we're to behave in the house of God, he's talking about our spiritual duties as church members. The more I hear about what goes on today in places called churches, the more I realize how much we need to study a book like First Timothy. First Timothy three fifteen answers the question, "Whose church is it?" The church of the living God. The word church there is ecclesia. Literally, it means to call, be called out. So we are called out as children of God to worship Him, and it is His church, the church of the living God. This verse, verse fifteen in chapter three, also answers the question, "What is the church?" It's the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillars were a crucial part of Roman architecture. They rested on foundations that had to be solid, and they met two demands of a structure, first of all, form and function. Uh, They provided that structural integrity with uh, a beauty of a building that modern architects try to imitate. So the letter shows us how the church is to be built on on pillars of doctrinal truth and practical behavior, that's form and function, that those give evidence of that truth. The topics that we'll cover in this epistle, uh, first of all in chapter 1, which we've covered is sound doctrine, uh, Paul told Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine and also that they don't argue about speculative things that lead to more questions rather than sound, or healthy doctrine. In the first eight verses of chapter 2, we'll see the topic of prayer. The last verses of the same chapter for next week, Lord willing, unless I save it to Mother's Day, the role of women in the church. Um, Then qualifications of church officials in chapters 3 and 4. The treatment of widows in chapter 5. The treatment of elders also in chapter 5. The Christian duties of servants and masters in chapter 6. And then the last uh, section, the topic of, uh, is on contentment and the love of money. We had a series of messages already this year on prayer. It was asking, seeking, and knocking. Our theme for the year, and we didn't cover this text here in chapter two, verses one through eight. So we will this morning. The title of the message this morning: Prayer in the Church. Let's just read the the eight verses, and then we'll um, make points today. There are five points in today's message, a little bit uh, more points, but the same amount of time that we'll cover. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We first see, first of all, in verse 1, the need for prayer. I exhort, there, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We have a call to prayer here. Paul says, I exhort. He invites us to pray. Now, back when we were in chapter 1, we talked about a word that's translated charge or commandment, and that was a military command. It was something that was non-negotiable. It had to be obeyed. Here we have a different word, uh, "parakalao." It's, it's calling alongside of. And so Paul is calling. He's pleading for the church. Uh, he's, he's imploring them to pray. He calls them to pray by his example, Again, by calling them alongside of a position where he is, he's inviting to do something that he is already in the habit of doing. He's praying. He's also addressing the church. Prayer is to be a major part of our corporate worship service. In church, when someone prays in front of a congregation I'm, I'm hoping that all of us are praying along with what is being said in our hearts. The prayer is being worded, but we're all praying. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, amen. They are, they are plugged into what's being prayed. They're praying, we're praying corporately in a unified way to God. So the, an exhortation, the call to prayer. Notice also the priority of prayer, first of all. Remember in chapter 1 when Paul called himself the chief of sinners, that was protos, he was at the top of the list. He was the worst sinner that there was, the chief of sinners. And then, after he was saved, he said, me first, in chapter 1, verse 16. And he wanted to be, a, that's the same word, protos. He wanted to be at the top of that list, that his life could be used as a template, as a pattern for other people to, to be saved, that God's grace could change their life. So if we were a list the things that are most important in the elements of a church service, Prayer should be one of the things at the top. It is of supreme importance. Same word here, first of all. It's the sweet aroma that ascended from the altar of the Old Testament. It was described as that aroma. David writes in Psalm 141:2, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands at the evening sacrifice. John says in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 4, and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Prayer is the final preparation of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 5. The belt, the shoes, the shield, the helmet, the sword, and then verse 18 praying always, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the saints and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Prayer is the church's weapon against Satan's attacks. In Acts 12, 5, Peter was in prison. And it says, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Prepositions at the end of that verse are very important. Of the church... That tells us by whom the prayer was made. Unto God, to whom the prayer was made. For him, for Peter, for whom the prayer was made. Prayer isn't something that we add to our, to our worship service. Uh, it's going to be awkward here. Let's insert a prayer. It's kind of a segue item. No, that's not the case. Again, when we pray, we are uniting our hearts before God's throne with thanks, with praise, with requests or petitions. Prayer first, prayer before every plan, prayer before every program, priority of prayer. Do, do we really believe in our churches that prayer is powerful? I, I love the story about the church members in a small town where a bar was trying to get its liquor license. And they decided to stay up all night at the church and pray for God to intervene. And it just so happened after they prayed that lightning struck the bar and burned it to the ground. The owner of the bar sued the church. He claimed that prayers were responsible for the fire. Well, the church hired an attorney, a lawyer, to argue in the court that they weren't responsible. The presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated, no matter how this case comes down, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the church doesn't. (laughs) Uh, Prayer first. It's a priority in our church worship. The description of prayer, there are four words that describe prayer in verse 1. The first three are very close in their meaning. Supplications, the word here is a general word for any kind of a request. It comes from a word that means to lack. And so it's used when a person is is without something and he's asking someone else whether it's God or for another person to help meet that need. So when we pray, we should be aware of our great need and of God's great ability to meet that need. And then the word prayers. This is a religious term. It's only used when making a request to God, not to other people. It signifies that prayer is to be reverent. The Edmund Hebert writes, In public prayer, irreverence in manner or content is inexcusable. Manner, that is, being flippant, being careless in, in the way we pray. And then in content, making sure what we're saying is what we want to plead to God. So, Hebert again, in public prayer... Uh, Irreverence in manner or content is inexcusable Heartfelt reverence in public prayer is often sadly lacking Then the third word, intercessions The word is found only here in the New Testament It speaks of asking God to, to see and to work on behalf of someone else We intercede when we bring the needs of others before the throne of grace Last Sunday there was an advertised protest against uh, Choices Pregnancy Center in Pontiac and people were asked were called to pray for God's intervention protection for that ministry and lo and behold the pros- protest didn't happen There's only one explanation there's the answers to those prayers God answers when people intercede And then the last word, giving of thanks. The first three words tell what kind of prayers to bring to God. This word tells how we come to him in prayer. We come thinking of the mercy that he's already provided in answering other prayers that he's answered before in the past. And so we give thanks to that mercy that's already received. And that attitude of prayer is something we often neglect we come with our petitions, but we forget to thank him for what he's done. Our prayer should be filled with praise. Prayer is important. William Carey once ridiculed, was once ridiculed for spending so much time in prayer. He said, you're neglecting your business. He said, prayer is my business. I just work as a shoe cobbler to help pay expenses. <laughs> is that the way that you live? Is prayer your business? It should be the business of the church. Notice, secondly, the objects of prayer. For all men, the end of verse 1, and then specifically for kings and for all that are in authority. These are the the ones for whom we pray. All men, for anyone whom God brings into your life. You hear about someone who has a need, you pray for them. Not just your friends, not just your family members, but pray for all men. F.B. Meyer tells about a conference that he was in with A.B. Simpson And early one morning, he looked for Simpson, and he couldn't find him. He found him alone in prayer. And as he was praying, he had a globe of the earth in his arms. He was clutching it, and he was praying for the world, for the people, men and women all around who needed Christ, who the gospel had not reached. There's a great need for global praying. We need to pray for all men. There's not one soul that is outside the reach of God. And if you believe that, then that soul should be inside the reach of your prayers. For kings, now these Ephesian believers were under King Nero. He was a tyrant. He was so wicked that he killed his wife, his mother, his chief advisors, many of the nobility. And he did so a lot of times so that he could just take their fortunes, so that they would become his. He ruled as the fifth Roman emperor from 54 to 68 A.D. Now, when was 1 Timothy written? 64 A.D. In 64 A.D., a large fire was uh, destroyed, much of the center of the city of Rome. And Nero acquired more than 200 acres in in the center of that city, and that's where he built his palace, the Golden House of Nero, one writer, Tacitus, uh, at that time blamed Nero uh, and, he, and he said uh, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire that had tortured and killed them. Um, and, and so he took them into the, uh, in the gladiators in the Roman Colosseums. Many were martyred. Uh, Peter and Paul were martyred under Nero's room. Now you think, rule, now you think about this. Pray for kings. They're getting this, this letter from Paul through Timothy This is the king that they were told to pray for. Don't ever tell me that you won't pray for a ruler in America because they're wicked. God's grace can do the impossible. And we're encouraged to pray for kings. Also for those in authority. Pray for those who make decisions that affect you. Another passage that teaches about our relationship to authority is is Romans chapter 13. And in that, there... Five times, I think, the word powers is mentioned. It's exousia. It's, the, it's the, uh, the ability, the authority that someone has. Let me read those first four verses in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or judgment. For rulers are not a terror of good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do, not, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon them that doeth good, evil. So God gives rulers power, this authority. And those powers, the text says twice, are ordained of God. That is, God arranged. He appointed these governmental authorities over us. When Jesus was taken to Pilate, he reminded Pilate that God was the one who put him in his position. And he would ultimately answer to God. In John 19, 19, Jesus didn't answer Pilate's initial question, Where are you from? Then Pilate said, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee, uses that same word. And Jesus answered in verse eleven, thou couldst have no power at all except against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivereth me unto thee hath the greater sin. But rulers, you say, can be evil, as they were in Rome, as they are today. Richard Halverson was the chaplain for the U.S. Senate from 1981 to 1995. Let me just read something that he wrote. To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it's because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. And so we're to pray for those who have the rule over us, pray for our president, our congressmen, our senators, our law enforcement agents. Uh, America could be a different place if churches, if Christians would pray. Notice in verse 2, in the second half of the verse, through verse 7, the purpose of prayer. This is the majority of the the passage here. Why do we pray? First of all, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So we pray so that we can enjoy religious freedoms. The words quiet and peaceable here are important to take together. The, The word quiet means The absence of outside disturbances, that is, as we worship the Lord, we don't want someone coming into the back door and disrupting the service and canceling our church services. And then peaceable, that's something that takes place inwardly, it's a distraction of our hearts. And so we ought to pray that we can have a quiet and peaceable life as we worship the Lord so that men might be saved, verse 4 it says, uh, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're praying for these officials in government. Why? Because God wants them saved. The best thing that can happen to our governmental authorities is not that they would leave us alone so we can worship, but that they themselves would come to Christ. Let us pray to that end. And Notice he says... This is the will of God, 1 Timothy 2.4, who will have all men to be saved. I don't understand all, all the ramifications of that, but here it is in print. Who will have all men to be saved. I find it again in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But as longsuffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33.11 tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so, as we pray for these authorities, we pray for their salvation. And notice in verses 5 and 6, this is the plan of God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's only one God. There's only one way to heaven. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And people hear that and say, you know, that doesn't sound politically correct. No, but it is theologically correct. (laughs) He is the only way to heaven. He's the only mediator between God and men. We don't go through praying through another individual, whether they're dead or whether they're alive. We go directly to the throne of God through Christ. Notice he paid the ransom price for all. The word ransom is that word that we've looked at before, a price that's paid in order to release us from the slave market of sin and set us free. The price was paid, notice, with his own blood, who gave himself a ransom for all. This is the message of Paul. Verse 7, he says, Whereunto? that is the testimony of the ransom provided by God through Christ, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, that is faith and truth. And so he was appointed to preach this message. Uh, As a preacher, he's the one with the message. As an apostle, he's one who is sent with the message. And as a teacher of the nations, he's he's the one with answers to the questions. And so we have the purpose of our prayer. Notice next the place of prayer. Just one little phrase at the beginning of verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere. So where do we pray? Literally in every place. That phrase shows up four times in Paul's writings. Here, and once in 1 Corinthians 1, 1.2, 2 Corinthians 2.14, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.8. And in all four of those references, he's talking about specific places where the church would meet. He's dealing with, again, corporate prayers from the body of Christ, the church, the believers. It's amazing to see footage of churches that are meeting in communist countries where they're praying together, in every place. They go out into the forest. They meet wherever they can, in basements. And they have joined together. And that's what he's saying here, everywhere. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere. Notice there's also men here. They're the ones that should be leading the public prayers of the services. Kenneth Wiest, a Greek expert, points out the word men is preceded by the definite article in the Greek text. Paul means that the men, as opposed to the women, should conduct public worship. We'll see more of that at the end of this chapter, not for today, but the place of prayer. Wherever you are, wherever you meet as a body of Christ, pray. Last, we see the attitude of prayer. Second half of verse 8. Lifting up holy hands without wrath, and doubting, or without doubting. So there are three negatives here. No sin, no anger, no doubt. Let's think about those things. No sin. Lifting up holy hands. Hands are an indication of what we do, our actions in life. God is not impressed by what we do if it doesn't match who we are. David said in Psalm 26, 6 and 7, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. The deeds of David's hands had to match his heart. And so we do what we do because of what God has done within us. He saved us. And God will answer the prayer of one who has a righteous or clean heart. Psalm 40, uh, 34, 15, we read, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. But in Psalm 66, 18, we read, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so the heart and the hands, lifting up holy hands in prayer, the attitude. Also, no anger. Gordon Fee says this means prayer is to be done without engaging in controversies. We're to come to the Lord in our prayers without thinking about our own agendas, our own will. We pray with wills that are surrendered to God's perfect will. We often word that in our prayers, if this is your will, that's what we want. Hatred and hostility come when we take things into our own hands. In prayer, we place everything into God's hands. So no sin, no anger, and last, without doubting. The idea here is without duplicity. I think it's best illustrated in James, who writes, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So, to word these attitudes, no sin, no anger, no doubt, in the positive, we might say the attitude of our prayers should be prayers with purity, prayers with love, prayers with faith. Church prayer today must be a priority in our worship service. We're to pray for all men, for kings, for all authorities, We're to pray that they'll come to a knowledge of the truth. We're to pray wherever we meet as a church. And we're to lead in prayer with sin confessed, with no anger toward others, with no doubt that God can and will answer. Let's bow our heads as we close the service today. Let me just bring some questions to your mind of how we can respond to this passage that we've looked at this morning maybe you're here and you realize that you don't pray because you've really never trusted Christ as your Savior there is a prayer in the Bible where you can start it's found in Romans 10 13 for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved what a great prayer if you've never done that today and you would you would Ask us to pray for you, to have the strength to do that, to make that right. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. With no one looking, would you just raise your hand so that I can pray for you? You've never trusted Christ as Savior, but today you want us to pray for you that you'll take that step. Anyone like that? Christian, how much time in your life is devoted to prayer? Maybe you already have a time with the Lord every day. If not... Would you commit to taking just a few minutes every day this week to spend time with God in prayer? If you would do that or if you are doing that, would you just raise your hand today? Amen. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to realize the importance of prayer, that we would make it a priority not only in our church but in our lives. And help us to see answers to those prayers as we come with the right attitude and the right requests and with the reverence that you've you've required. Help us to see you accomplish great things. And we'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise for everything that you've done with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.